6.30 and 9.30 showings. I will be there. Excellent. Um, excited to be in Portland. It's yeah. fantastic. It's always, it's always fun. Okay, thank you for being here. Mm-hmm. Both thank of you. you. Thank, thank you. Listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM, also heard at Translator K220HR Hood River at 91.9 FM and Translator K282BH in Philomath at 104.3 FM. And we're streaming at the top of our lungs on www.kboo.fm. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, I'm Brian DeShazer, Director of the Pacifica Radio Archives, and welcome to From the Vault, our weekly series that takes the history out of the oldest and largest collections of public radio programming in the United States and puts it back on the radio. Today we bring you a program preserved thanks to a partnership with the California Audiovisual Preservation Project. The program is the 1984 documentary on the Great Wall of Los Angeles, an ambitious beautification project conceived of in 1974 that resulted in one of the world's longest murals at 2,700 feet and growing to this day. And we're going to listen to the artist Judy Baca. I had been working in East Los Angeles with with Chicanos primarily. When I began to direct the Citywide Mural Project, we were doing pieces in the black community that were were really aimed at uh, the black community, pieces in the Asian community were aimed at the Asian community, but nowhere had we actually seen those things all alongside of each other. So my sense was that if we could somehow perhaps put alongside of one another the history of each of these various ethnic groups, that we could begin to see the connections between ourselves. That was artist Judy Baca. This great wall mural under the direction of artist and educator Judy Baca began as a beautification project. It evolved into a historical journey of the underrepresented that now has thousands of visitors every year. This program, produced and narrated by Helene Rosenbluth and Carol Dix in 1984, captures the cinematic scope of this incredible project.
TV Wonder pays tribute to a part of our history which is often unsung. Yet where do you go to learn about the history of a people that is often excluded from the textbooks? If you're in Los Angeles, you can exit at Coldwater Canyon off the Ventura Freeway and travel north some. You'll find the world's largest mural on the walls of the Tahunga Wash. A giant history book over 2,000 feet long and 13 feet high. There, you can see decades of history seen from the viewpoint of California's ethnic groups, their contributions, and struggles to overcome obstacles. Under the direction of feminist artist Judy Baca, the Great Wall of Los Angeles was born from an art form that has been the voice of the Chicano people, graffiti. Well, graffiti really is just the beginning of speaking in sort of monosyllables, saying this, you know, yo soy, I am, I'm here. Murals take it a step further. You can actually say more with uh, the creation of images. Graffiti actually, or the placa, the plaquiaso, was the, the, the reason that I began to think about painting on walls. I was influenced by the, the young people that were around me who were using the wall surfaces as a community newspaper. It's not that big of a leap, really, from using the wall to make a simple statement about yourself to using it in the creation of images that are mural images. I was interested in, the, in how young people were occupying public spaces, how those public spaces were being used by them, and um, in fact, what they didn't know about themselves. Uh, obviously, in East Los Angeles back in, in 1970 and 71, when I began, there was a great deal of problems within the barrios, one, one barrio pitted against the other. And it seemed to me that it was a, there was a common lack of uh, information among the people that I was working with, the people that I met in the communities. And that was that they didn't understand what they had in common with their brothers who lived three blocks down the street and, in fact, saw those people as their enemies. And I think that's one of the, the kind of impacts of the loss of, of history, the loss of sense of self. And in a sense, what I was doing was discovering it for myself alongside of the people I was working with. I began by finding people who would represent the various ethnic groups in this area. The San Fernando Valley is not a, a foreign place to me. It's where I was born. I, I mean, I actually was born in Watts, but grew up in the San Fernando Valley, spent 18 years here. I knew very well the long history of racial violence and um, the way that various groups were separated from one another. So my sense was that if we could somehow perhaps put alongside of one another the history of each of these various ethnic groups, that we could begin to see the connections between ourselves. And I had been working in East Los Angeles with, with Chicanos primarily. When I began the, to direct the Citywide Mural Project, we were doing pieces in the black community that were, that were really aimed at uh, the black community, uh, pieces in the Asian community were aimed at the Asian community, but nowhere had we actually seen those things all alongside of each other. I had begun to see the similarities of the, of the kinds of history and the kinds of problems as I organized in each of those communities with the Citywide Mural Project. And this long wall offered the opportunity to perhaps put it together and see what might happen. It was an experiment. So in 1976, we put 80 young people together. They represented different uh, neighborhood groups and different ethnic groups, and we began the, the long process of the development of the Great Wall. We began to discuss individually the history of Chicanos, 
uh, the history of Indians, the history of women, the history of all the various peoples who made up California, and to uh, bring that to the whole group in historical presentations, to teach kids how to read blueprints, to teach kids how to work together as a team. Our major emphasis was at that time, how could we make us all live together in this actually kind of isolated space, 13 and a half feet below ground level, and to create a product together that would talk about all of us together collectively, and in fact work out among ourselves the same kind of thing that we were, was going on in the imagery. Look for the connections between each of us personally, as well as look at the connections historically. The Great Wall of Los Angeles is a project of the Social and Public Arts Resource Center, SPARC, a multicultural arts center that produces, exhibits, and preserves public artworks. SPARC brought together over a dozen humanist scholars and historians to aid in the selecting, designing, and enlivening of the images. The summer of 1983 focused on the completion of the 1950s segment. Part of the project provided seminars which opened discussion between historians and the community at large, bringing different perspectives to major events of the 50s. For instance, during World War II, millions of American women left their traditional roles as housewives to enter the war industries as manual laborers and managers. But in the post-war years, Rosie the Riveter was forced back to the kitchen as the men came home to reclaim their jobs. But women were not necessarily as passive as many people believe, according to Dr. Sarah Sage, historian and professor of women's studies at UC Riverside. I think that perception that women who went out and were able to get high-paying work in defense plants, uh, many of them, particularly in California, during World War II, did experience a very drastic change in their life after the war was over. One of the things that happened right away is they were so worried about another depression, were always planning for the last major crisis. So all they could think about at the end of World War II as it became apparent we were going to be victorious was what we would do to prevent ourselves from falling back into the major depression of the 1930s where there hadn't been enough work for people. So they were terribly concerned about unemployment, and the same people that had been urging these women in the 1940s to leave the home and go out and take defense jobs, and doing it by arguing that all of the work that was done in the factory was really analogous to work that was being done in the home. They argued, for example, that operating um, 
a big crane didn't take any more ability than operating a dishwasher. You know, you punch the buttons. They argued that if you could sew, you could deal with the electrical transistor parts that they were putting together. So the whole argument in the 40s by the War Manpower Commission had been to encourage women to go into the work sector. Well, they didn't really need to be encouraged too much because the pay was so good. These women were suddenly making a good deal of money that they had never made before. They were unionized. The unions had not been so interested in unionizing women's work, but once the women went into heavy industry, generally that industry was already unionized, so the women got the benefits of working with, at union wages. Suddenly, the articles in the women's magazines began to shift quantum leap, where in the 40s, during the war, they had been telling women that child care was a good thing, that you could cook up a dinner for your family in 20 minutes, kind of what we think of as the 30-minute gourmet. Now the emphasis was very different. It was on juvenile delinquency, which was suddenly discovered right at this point and blamed on working mothers. There was an emphasis on what you would have to do as a woman to help ease the transition of the returning GI. And of course, one of the things that you were expected to do literally is your patriotic duty just as you had been expected to take this war job in 1942, you were now expected to give it up to a returning GI because the concern was that there wouldn't be enough work. Women who had trained themselves for jobs, who had learned how to rivet, and primarily what they were doing during this period was not so much riveting as spot welding. But women who had gone to a great deal of uh, work to acquire skills in the welding trades were laid off. And then when they went back to apply for the jobs that they had had during the war, they were told that those jobs had been reclassified men's jobs. So what did you say to a woman who had worked a job and worked it very successfully and then overnight is laid off and she comes back lays out her skills, and they say, no, you can't have that job. It is a man's job now. It's been classified as a job unsuitable for, for women. Well, so we see Rosie being sucked back into the home, but primarily, I think, as a result of a very conscious effort on the part of the powers that be to ward off against the idea that there weren't going to be enough jobs, this concern about unemployment. What happened, though, to Wanda the Welder or Rosie the Riveter wasn't that straightforward. I think to some extent it depended on how old she was during the 40s. Certainly for a vast number of women in their 20s whose husbands or, or boyfriends came back from World War II, they immediately began to have babies. But I think we can't forget the other women who had also gone to work during the wartime period. Women who were older at that point, who were in their 30s and some in their 40s, and what happened to them. And here we see that there was a real difference, I think, between 
the stereotypical vision of what happened in the 1950s and a reality that many women lived in the 1950s, and that is women continued to work, and they worked in ever larger numbers. And we're so used to the feminine mystique, which said every woman in the 50s was a housewife, that we have to think back to what our mothers and aunts and other people were doing you have ever-increasing numbers of female workers, particularly married women. That had never been true before. Married women had not worked in great numbers prior to this time. And you had women um, working, but again, not for the wages and benefits that they were getting when they'd been Rosie the Riveter. Women, once again, were relegated into that very small and low-paying section of the economy that we now call the pink-collar ghetto. Once they lost their jobs in heavy industry and defense contracts, they were forced back on the jobs that had always traditionally been available for women. The feminist movement of the 60s is generated out of this tension between the myth and the reality of the 50s. And I think that uh, the graphic gets to that very well because if you look at the picture of Rosie the Riveter, she's really fighting to get out. She doesn't want to be sucked back into that vacuum cleaner. And she did continue to fight for economic independence and economic gains during the 1950s and continued to work and continued at least in her actions to acknowledge that women had a right to be gainfully employed even though the collective wisdom and the general rhetoric of the 50s denied that, and I think probably many women themselves denied that. Behind the televised images of American womanhood, an all-American family of 2.5 kids, 0.5 equaling howdy duty, moves into a new suburb of endless box houses and endless rows, representing white flight from the central city. Meanwhile, minorities and poor immigrants move from rural communities into the city. The 50s meant the beginning of the development of suburbia, as well as separation and segregation. The 1950s was a time when Jews were moving into the suburbs, into areas where they were numerically a minority, but no longer their minority status was visible. It's the point in terms of ethnic groups in which they're supposed to disappear. Dr. Bruce Phillips, sociologist with Hebrew Union College. Uh, the 50s are... Um, the culmination for Jews in Los Angeles of a whole process of acculturation in what was considered the golden of Medina, the, uh, the golden land. One of the problems we had in uh, a very fascinating long morning with uh, the artist group uh, was discussing what, what are the symbols that you can create visually to capture the Jewish experience in America, particularly the meaning of the Jewish experience in Los Angeles, for a group that uh, racially is invisible and in fact uh, was reaching a point where it had reaped the successes of being uh, a minority group and finding its way into the mainstream. First of all, for Los Angeles, uh, the 1950s was really the beginning of Jewish Los Angeles. The first Jewish settlement was here as, as early as the 1860s, but 70% of all Jews in Los Angeles who are here now came after the Second World War. Um, Los Angeles is now the second largest Jewish community in the world um, with a Jewish population of half a million. 
Um, there's only three and a half million Jews in the entire state of Israel. So you get some idea of the, uh, the scope and something like five and a half million Jews in the United States overall. Two things were happening with Jews in the 1950s. First, Jews were coming to Los Angeles starting in great numbers uh, after the war. And also it was the movement of Jews away from being in a kind of their own, the last vestiges of an immigrant ghetto and moving into uh, the mainstream. Uh, it was also a time, by the way, when Jews overcame the last barriers of, uh, in Los Angeles of uh, housing discrimination. It's one of the ironies, for example, that Fairfax, which is now the only really visible Jewish district in Los Angeles in the 1930s and 40s, was closed off to Jews through a variety of, of restrictive uh, covenants. It was really in the 1950s that working within the political process, uh, particularly the courts, um, that Jews were able to overcome uh, a number of these kinds of legal discriminations, both in terms of housing and in terms of uh, jobs and higher education. Um, there are two things that are distinct about the Jewish contribution to Los Angeles and the impact of Jews on Los Angeles uh, life that are depicted in the mural. Um, the significance of the guy here working with the sewing machine uh, is that uh, many people don't realize that the, the garment industry was essentially a, a Jewish creation. Um, what, the, what, we, what we no longer call ready-to-wear, since I think very many people, at least no one I know, really has tailor-made clothing, um, but the whole notion of, of off-the-shelf or ready-to-wear clothing was really a Jewish idea. And it was one born of necessity, um, because the Jewish pattern, Jews having existed for already 2,000 years as a minority within a majority culture had adapted a number um, of kind of techniques for both social, cultural, and economic survival. Uh, one of which is always to try to be self-employed, independent, and find the economic uh, niches. So many of those Jewish uh, um, needle trades people, when they started, uh, when they moved to California, moved the garment industry with them and created sportswear. Uh, playing on the whole idea of the California image. Now, this guy over here is spinning out a talus, our Jewish prayer shawl, which is winding into a film canister. Um, and the film canister uh, is also uh, part of kind of the, one of the Jewish uh, changes brought about to Los Angeles, which is the uh, film industry was essentially, or the modern film industry was a creation um, of Jews, largely people, interestingly, coming from the needle trades. It was high-risk capital for was the style to which Jews had by necessity become accustomed. The days of the great movie moguls uh, were essentially the days of the Jewish movie moguls. Then we have the, the film winding over here to another figure, uh, that of Einstein. And in a sense, what, what Einstein symbolized to American Jewry was, first of all, um, kind of a legitimization or validation uh, of Jewish life, or of intellectuality, uh, of scholarship, um, the very kind of uh, values that uh, are associated with traditional Jewish learning. And not only that, Einstein is a refugee. Uh, he was lucky enough to make it out of Germany uh, in the 1930s. And in a sense, as a poignant reminder um, that uh, were it not for that stroke of luck, he would have died like an animal, uh, along with six million 
uh, other Jews. Einstein represented uh, a kind of Jewish vision, uh, a different kind of contribution um, of Jews not only to uh, the United States but to Western civilization, uh, which is epitomized with this kind of Escher print here. It shows Einstein holding the atom. Um, and Einstein, by the way, had no, uh, uh, had no inclination that this was going to be useful for anything. And once the atom bomb was created, uh, pleaded with Roosevelt not to produce it. You know, once it was clear at the University of Chicago labs that uh, you could create such a bomb, Einstein uh, was really very much opposed to it and very active um, in the uh, early work against um, nuclear arms. And as a result, the coming out of the atom uh, is um, kind of a pictorial representation uh, of uh, the uh, messianic vision from the book of Isaiah, um, which is probably one of the most uh, sung Jewish songs in Israel and in synagogues, um, which has its translation in the uh, black spiritual ain't going to study war no more. Um, which comes from the longer passage, uh, and you shall beat your swords into plowshares, your uh, spears into pruning hooks, and neither shall you learn war anymore. And in fact, this kind of Escher uh, drawing shows uh, swords being turned into plows, um, which um, I think is an appropriate representation of the 1950s, and certainly uh, uh, an issue that's still very much alive in the Jewish community today, uh, is to uh, to see that vision uh, come about, uh, particularly against the, the context of a potential nuclear nightmare. Wasn't that a time, wasn't that a time, wasn't that a time, a time to try? The soul of man, wasn't that a terrible time? Informers took their Judas pay to tell their sorry tale the gangs in Congress had their way and free souls went to jail. Wasn't that a time? Wasn't that a time? A time to try? The soul of man was that a terrible time. The weavers sing of that terrible time, for they were among the many that were blacklisted during that period. Superimposed enlarged. Joseph McCarthy, and one of the most prominent features is his ear in front, which in actuality is about four feet high on the wall. And an American flag drapes around his shoulders and over his arms and forms into a list. Bob Pearson, doctoral candidate in social ethics at University of Southern California and one of the researchers on the Great Wall Project. And there's a number of people on this list who are slipping off of it into this very large cylinder, which at once appears to be a courtroom proceeding where HUAC, the House for the Investigation on American Activities, was questioning these people as to if they were ever members of the Communist Party or sympathizers with the Communist Party. Most of these people were well-known Hollywood producers, actors, screenwriters, who had been singled out and it was interesting, I think of 19 people that they had initially called, um, 13 of them I think were Jewish, which is interesting. And of those people, 10 of them refused to answer. They said, um, I have nothing to say. 
and those 10 people were found in contempt of Congress by the HUAC committee. And they were blacklisted, meaning that they were you know, denied access to professional participation in the film industry. Um, and s several of them spent time in prison because of their refusal to answer to questions. And as you look at this cylinder, it really is a trash can, as if these people are, the lives are just emptied, are trashed. Then it leads out of the trash can as another, the list enwraps itself around the typewriter, showing that there really was a very firm form of censorship in Hollywood during that time. It was frightening to read about how Joseph McCarthy, because he wanted to, I think for a lot of reasons of self-aggrandizement, put himself in the spotlight of the nation as you know the heroic protector against the Red Scare, singled out intentionally people in Hollywood because they had the most visibility in American society at that time. And how many lives were affected by that? Um, the proceedings went on for a number of years, and all sorts of people were called to testify against each other, including Ronald Reagan, including Gary Cooper, including a number of other such folk who um, really acted in full accord with HUAC's requests and even copped on other fellow members of the industry. And so this one sequence of the Hollywood 10 really brings to mind the immediate effect of Joseph McCarthy and the Red Scare upon Los Angeles history, upon Hollywood, upon the film industry. And it really is a topic that the artist felt needed to be de depicted forcefully because it's in a lot of circles almost been ignored and forgotten. And it just calls to mind how close any government, and especially our government, can come to that type of censorship. For a copy of this program or other programs in this series, visit us online at pacificaradioarchives.org or call us in the archives at 1-800-735-0230. Remember, every donation that you make helps us continue our mission to discover, restore, and make accessible another audio treasure for your enjoyment. And now back to our program. Pop 50s culture and its many untold stories is captured in the Great Wall at a drive-in theater. A huge Elvis Presley wails his rock songs from the silver screen, but behind him there's a smaller image, one of Chuck Berry, who many people see as the original force of rock's creativity and inspiration in the black community. And then there's Big Mama Thornton, who received no acclaim for writing one of Elvis's biggest hits. Behind these black musicians, a Charles White portrait of a black woman holding up South Los Angeles 
portrays the sustaining community activism of black women in volunteer and church organizations. This scene emerges with another, depicting the interior of a local bus with the forebearers of the civil rights movement. Paul Robeson, Rosa Parks, Gwendolyn Brooks, Ralph Bunch, and Martin Luther King Jr. are rising from their bus seats and moving forward for new destinations. This is the first year that there's any gay or lesbian content in the Great Wall mural, uh, which really is no surprise as the 1950s was the beginning of a social change movement dealing with homosexuality. Nancy Angelo, research coordinator for the Great Wall Project. Up until the 1950s, and actually through the 1950s, homosexuality was so deeply hidden uh, that it was very hard for people to, to identify homosexuality or have any sense of it. At that time, of course, the, gay, the word gay was not used. The term would be homosexuality. In 1950, the Mattachine Society was founded, which was an organization primarily made up of homosexual men, uh, which was the first gay organization uh, set up to deal precisely with social change. Before that time, gays had organized into groups for social purposes, to get to know other people, to have some kind of sense of family and networking on the kind of subterranean level that gays had to live in um, because of discrimination in society. However, the Mattachine Society was founded specifically to fight for social change. And the group was formed initially, the, the most visible spokesman was Harry Hay, who is depicted here. Uh, who issued a call for organization. Now, Harry had a background of social organizing as a, as a labor union organizer from as early as the 30s on into the 50s. And as he describes it, um, we interviewed him for the project, was already an outcast in a sense. So it was not that difficult for him to take another step of identifying publicly as homosexual and beginning organizing. There were about six men who joined with him to form the Mattachine Society. The name is based on the Mattachine Society, which was a Société Joyeux in the Middle Ages in France, um, with a really spiritual base where men joined together, lived communally, and danced a dance wearing masks with a strong sense of there being a spiritual union. The Mattachine Society's first project um, in organizing was to deal with entrapment. And at that time, of course, uh, to give some kind of a picture, it was funny when we interviewed him, this was sort of the oral history part of the project, uh, some of the questions we asked were, how did you organize? Did you post flyers? Did you, <laughs> you know, out of our naivete of having, doing organizing in the 70s and 80s, he, of course, laughed at us and said if we'd posted a single flyer, we would have been, you know, shot on sight. To give you a picture of, of what homosexuals faced in the 50s, of course it was a crime to engage in homosexual sex. And uh, if, indeed, you were caught or implicated in any way in any kind of act that could be construed as homosexual, and you were then tried and convicted of such an act, you had to register as a sex offender for the rest of your life with whatever police station was the police station in the area in which you lived, and that information would then be public information for employers, landlords. Anyone who became identified as, as homosexual at that time stood to lose their insurance, they stood to lose their home, they stood to lose their job, also had to say that they weren't engaged in any kind of homosexual acts and never had been. So the risks were very high, and when the Mattachine Society began organizing, um, people were very fearful about coming and being involved in the organizing activities. And men would come with women who they, who they would say were their wives or their sisters. Or, or people would come and say, I have a cousin or a brother or my uncle 
who I think is homosexual and I'm interested in learning more. And most of the organizing happened in people's homes or in churches. Eventually churches became the central way of organizing because at that time uh, police would notice if there were too many cars around someone's home parked and it was a suspicious activity and then would come to inquire why was there a gathering, why were there so many cars parked in this area and then people stood a chance of being discovered and, and made public their identity. So in the organizing in, in either apartment buildings or churches, um, that identity would be masked. Uh, the situation with entrapment was since it was illegal to be homosexual or involved in homosexuality in any way, the scene of gay bars is not at all one's image of gay bars in the 70s and 80s where everyone is dancing and able to be freely open with their own sexual preference. At the time, uh, there were gay bars were st sexually segregated as I'd say they tend to be now uh, between men's bars and women's bars and most of the entrapment went on in men's bars and at the time homophobia fear of homosexuality was focused more on men than women because women were not as visible or even considered to be as much lesbian or, or homosexual so most of the public fear was focused on men and um, in the men's bars uh, there was no dancing. Dancing would have been an absolutely public declaration of one's sexual preference. Um, people had to be very subtle and discreet about establishing any kind of contact. And one bar, which was the Cherokee in Hollywood, that was described to us as men sitting at the bar. There was a mirror above the bar. And they would look in the bar and establish contact through the mirror. If someone did so much as to brush the shoulder of the man next to him, he stood to be arrested as the bars were heavily infiltrated by the vice squad. And you see here a man from the vice squad with a vice trap beckoning, in a metaphor here, beckoning people over to then get trapped in the vice squad. Harry Hayes said that at the time there were several thousand officers in the LAPD who were assigned to gay bars. And even um, vice squad uh, Agents were found in, in uh, broom closets, outside the restrooms, uh, out in the alleyways behind. Of course, there's sort of the standard bus that happened right as everyone was leaving at 2 o'clock when the bars closed. Since homosexuality was so, um, so repressed due to the societal oppression, essentially the bar was a place still where you could, could identify with others like yourself. Um, even though that was also a repressive environment. So it was still a very important place to go to have that feeling that I'm not the only one there. There are people and to meet other people. So in the bars, uh, people had to be very, very discreet about making any kind of contact, even so much as saying, hey, would you like to go for coffee with me afterwards could be construed as a come on. And with the entrapment at the time, thousands of men were arrested and there was a really thriving business for lawyers at the time who would defend men for huge, huge, huge legal fees. Harry Hay said that uh, some clerks in department stores at the time were paid $25 a week were having to pay $2,000 lawyer fees to get off the charges and not necessarily even to get off them but not to get a jail sentence, just to pay a fine. And even if that were to take place, um, these men still had to register as sex offenders with the police and be identified that way for the rest of their lives. So the Mattachine Society's first action was to deal with entrapment in the bars. And the first defense was of Dale Jennings, who was entrapped in the bar and was the first homosexual entrapped in a bar and tried for his homosexuality, who said, yes, I am homosexual. So what? I was doing nothing lewd or disgraceful. And before that time, everyone would deny it in order to, to receive a reduced sentence and to, and to get off. Uh, 
And the Mattachine Society then did a tremendous amount of organizing, tr trying to work with the media, although it was very difficult to even get any kind of attention to the matter, and in supporting Dale Jennings. And that was really a turning point because Dale Jennings got off. Around that same time, in 1953, the Daughters of Belitis was formed in San Francisco. And the Daughters of Belitis was the first women's organization, lesbian organization, uh, also dedicated to social change. Actually, the Daughters of Belitis was started by um, four couples uh, as a social organization. Again, for women to have a place where they could get together, they would meet in each other's homes. It wasn't so much the bar focus for them, especially as women who are couples. We met with Del Martin, who was one of the, uh, the founders, and Phyllis Lyon of Daughters of Belitis, who told us about the founding of it. They really started to have a kind of social situation in which they could get together, share their concerns. Several of them were mothers. Um, they were all dealing with uh, you know, how to bring up their children, what it was like being in a relationship with another woman, getting support for that from each other. Also, it was a multiracial group, which is something that's not normally known. There was one black woman and one Filipina woman, and um, one Chicana in the forming group of Daughters of Belitis. The issues that they dealt with in the beginning were a lot around um, lesbian mother issues and um, also informing lesbians about their rights and really looking at what's lesbian identity. There was absolutely no kind of public image of what it means to be a lesbian at that time so that women who were coming out or who were questioning their sexuality had nothing to look to as a guideline or anything to even cue to for a role model or a sense of what, what that was like or what they had to face. And so a lot of the DOB's early activities were to set up discussions and lectures in the community about different aspects of lesbianism, just so that women could have a sense of getting informed and, and meeting other women and having role models. And some of those things dealt with legal issues, they dealt with parenting issues, they dealt with um, job issues. Those are really the primary things at that time. Um, also religious issues, and some of the earlier supporters, the DOB, did some daring things. One of the f also first things they did was they published The Ladder, which is the first lesbian publication, and, and which was mimeographed here in the kitchen. You see that women are mimeographing it in the kitchen. Um, they sent their first issue to all of the members of the Bar Association in San Francisco <laughs> to sort of try and flesh out what lawyers might be sympathetic to homosexuality and be able to help homosexuals. And they said they got something like 90% of those back with irate, take me off your mailing list. <laughs> you know, I don't know how you got my name. But out of that also, they got a certain amount of support from lawyers who then came to the defense of both men and women homosexuals in the Bay Area at that time. Also, DOB started a tremendous amount of organizing, as, as did the Mattachine Society, to set up chapters all over the country. In the 50s and 60s, they proliferated but really they did a whole lot of that initial groundwork out of which other things could grow. And the other part of the image here that makes it whole um, is that you see from climbing into the closet at this end are police who are trying desperately to get into the closet. And that also is, is a sense of picking up what then you see in the vice squad really trying to seek out and harass and then eventually prosecute and convict homosexuals. The 50s also was a most oppressive time for Native Americans. The forced assimilation of Indians is depicted by a government official stripping an Indian boy of his traditional dress and cutting his hair. Indian youth were sent several states away from their homes to boarding schools where they were taught to give up their traditional culture for Anglo ways. 
Concurrent with this program was the urban relocation off of reservations of many other Indian adults and children. However, the 1950s did prove to be a time of progress for Asian Americans. Dr. Yiji Ichioka, professor of Asian American Studies at UCLA, explains the difficulty in obtaining the right of naturalization. In the post-war period, this meant a fundamental change in the status of Asian immigrants in this country. And it's with, in this context, you have to look at this painting and interpret it as symbolizing the change in the political status of not just Chinese Americans, but Filipino Americans, Korean Americans, Japanese Americans, and, and also East Indians, or those who were referred to as East Indians, those who came from India. Right? At that, at, in the 50s, there's no Vietnamese, there's no Laotians, there are no Thais, etc. One of the things that really separates fundamentally the Asian immigrant experience in this country from the European immigrant experience is that no Asian was given the right of naturalization. All right? Whereas any European immigrant, as long as he or she satisfied the general naturalization requirement, had the right of naturalization. Now, America being the kind of country it is, no matter how persecuted, say, the Irish were, they still had the franchise and could enter the American political arena because they had that right in order to protect themselves to the best of their ability. Right? Asians didn't have this fundamental right, and therefore, they were always outside the political process. They were political pariahs, I call them, because they didn't have this right to become citizens of this country. And this went right back to the 18th century when the first naturalization statute was enacted in 1790. And it said that free white people, fr free white persons is the exact phrase, as a general qualification for naturalization, this was laid down in the statutes. Only free white persons were eligible for naturalization. Then in 1870, blacks were made eligible for naturalization. This is after the Civil War, of course. And the language was used that anyone who was of African nativity, since there were slaves who had been born in Africa, or anyone of African descent. Now the Chinese came to California, of course, first in the mid-19th century. So the whole question was, when the Chinese came, were they so-called free white persons? And the answer was no. And certainly they were not natives of Africa, nor of African descent. So they were declared so-called aliens ineligible to citizenship. So specifically, by law, the Chinese were barred from being granted the right of naturalization. Right? The Japanese followed the Chinese, and the whole issue came to the fore. And the Supreme Court ruled in 1922 that the Japanese were Mongolians. Mongolians were not, could not be classified as a free, free white person, and therefore the Japanese was ineligible to citizenship. 
Now, based upon this kind of special political category into which Asians were put, now mind you, no European immigrant was placed in this category, there were all kinds of discriminatory laws that were enacted. And in California, the most notorious, of course, was the so-called alien land laws, beginning in 1913, which stated that no alien ineligible to citizenship, right? the code word is, you're Asian, could purchase land, agricultural land in the state of California, and could lease land only for three years. Moreover, no Asians who already own land, aliens ineligible to citizenship now, could transfer or sell land they already owned to another Asian ineligible to citizenship. See? So if I'm a Japanese immigrant and I had in my will that I, if I die, I want to bequeath my 40 acres to my wife, if she was an alien ineligible to citizenship, she could not inherit that land. It went up for public sale, and the proceeds from that public sales then were given to the wife. The idea was to try and drive the Japanese out of California agriculture by denying them the right to hold on to the land they already owned in 1913. And so in 1943, the Chinese specifically were granted the right of naturalization. This is the first Asian group. Right? It took the Chinese almost 100 years since they first started coming here in the late 1840s. So in 1946, Filipinos and East Indians were granted the right. It was not until 1952 where the Koreans and the Japanese granted the right. It's only 1952, right? And it was only in 1952 in the state of California that the alien land law was struck down completely as totally unconstitutional. This is only 31 years ago. Yet even with the gains made by Asian Americans, integration was hampered by the construction of the infamous Los Angeles freeway system, encircling and effectively dividing minority communities. Chicano family is separated by the serpentine thoroughfares as the pillared highway breaks through the roofs of houses. A bulldozer and policemen forcibly uproot the Chicano community so that Dodger Stadium can be built on land designated at one time for public housing. However, according to consultant Sybil Venegas, professor of Chicano studies at East Los Angeles College, many individuals resisted, but to no avail. What I see as being the main image of the Chicano segment is one of urban renewal and the Chicano community, which is probably more a case of urban removal than renewal, uh, as it worked out uh, with the communities that were in the way, so to speak, of urban renewal plans. Uh, Chicanos were experiencing regional shifts in population. They were moving from uh, pretty much isolated within the Southwest into um, all over the United States, so there was an isolation pattern that was being broken during this time. Uh, a tremendous amount of increased urbanization. I think this was also a general trend for all peoples at this time, 
particularly true with Chicanos, and I think that the images that we have here are an urban situation. Uh, also, you're beginning to see uh, the Mexican communities organizing for increased political representation and community organization, which was essential at that time to deal with the urban renewal or urban removal. Um, getting to the specific uh, images of the mural, you have freeway construction in East Los Angeles and the various communities that were impacted by uh, freeway construction were Boyle Heights, uh, you had the Santa Ana Freeway, the Golden State Freeway, these are communities immediately east of the uh, LA interchange that were just divided uh, into many sections because of the way the freeway patterns ran. I think if you go a little further east, you hit the uh, Long Beach Freeway, which was also, both of all these freeways were constructed in the early 50s, 53, 54. These were all old Mexican communities, uh, a lot of these communities going back to 1910. So you had all of these uh, freeways coming in and dividing neighborhoods, and I think what the, the main result of that was, was a kind of social disorganization that resulted um, in these areas whereby you had formerly cohesive groups of people that kind of interacted um, probably in a more positive way than they began to later on. The freeways came in and literally broke up neighborhoods into um, tight little regions that were bordered on one side by one off-ramp, another side by a major thoroughfare, another way by an on-ramp and little tiny uh, groups of, of people were literally living in isolated like shadows of the freeway. Um, you have the images here where you have these people, which seem to, it's kind of like an animosity, as I see, between these two groups of people. And what's interesting is that uh, on uh, a particular section, you have a child who seems to be kind of like an uh, innocent victim of, of all of this uh, neighborhood animosity, which I think today we know is body of warfare. Uh, gang activity, uh, neighborhoods in conflict with one another. We see the next image as being primarily that of the issue with Chavez Ravine. Chavez Ravine was the site of Dodger Stadium, and you have Dodger Stadium coming in out of, uh, out of space, really, and I think it's being in the process of being planted into uh, this community. This is one of the older Mexican neighborhoods in Los Angeles. Uh, it goes back probably to the late 19th century. And where it's located is in Elysian Park, kind of um, north of downtown LA and a little bit east, I guess, of Lincoln Heights. It was, I think, always a neglected community until the 50s. It was a community that lived without, for example, without sanitation services, without paved streets. And it was always a, a kind of a thing that, that there was just a, uh, a tendency to neglect this neighborhood, to ignore it until the mid-1940s when people began, residents of the neighborhood began to start organizing and they began to start organizing to demand sanitation services, to have their trash picked up, to have streets put in, to have bus service coming into that area. And so what we see if you go back and you look at the history of Chavez Ravine is that even as early as the, the mid-40s, early 40s, there seems to be developing a tradition of uh, political activism and community organization, even just among residents. In the late 1940s, and I think this probably had something to do with the fact that the community was demanding improved conditions, and I think the city didn't want to deal with it, 
was that the city came up with a plan for Chavez Ravine, and the plan was to um, break it all down and renovate it with public housing. And they were telling people that they were going to provide them with new homes. They were going to knock down their old homes and, and put them into public housing. People didn't want to lose their homes. They were homes that had been built individually by people, that they had bought the land. The families had lived in the homes for several generations. And so, again, there was a resistance to uh, this new plan to create public housing. Uh, that plan never really worked out. What happened is time went by. Uh, by the mid-1950s, the city was uh, beginning to negotiate with the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers who wanted to come to L.A., and they began to um, talk about the possibility of selling them a lot of land to build their stadium. And again, the community reacted to this. They didn't want public, public housing. What they wanted was to continue to live in that area with the same kinds of services that other communities had, had been given. But the interests that were, at, that were behind bringing Dodger Stadium into Elysian Park, and particularly Chavez Ravine, I think were very strong interests. Among them, I think the Los Angeles Times was one of the biggest advocates. When you look at urban renewal, basically who was behind that were big business interests who were thinking more in terms of developing freeways to allow suburban neighborhoods, which were also being developed at that time, easier access to their stores, this type of thing. They use uh, public domain laws to literally take the, the land away from these families that own their property and sell it to the Dodger Stadium, and it involves something like 300 acres of land, and it was taken directly from families who resisted all the way. Uh, once the land was given to this new uh, ball team that was going to come in, they began construction of uh, the, the ballpark itself, and there was still protest, protests in City Hall. When this went on, this is the construction and the sale went, began around 1957. By 1959, they were people still dug in and entrenched in the community. They didn't want to leave, yet the city was forcing them to leave. And the uh, Arechiga family, which was uh, one of the last families to leave and probably one of the most strongest um, opponents of, um, against their forced eviction, uh, had to be physically removed by the Los Angeles uh, sheriffs. And I think that's what this scene is here. You have a very evil-looking sheriff who's got this woman in his grip, and she's still uh, protesting about the loss of her home. And uh, that's, I think that's what, where the scene of this particular uh, subject matter ends with the removal of that family. When you walk down the bike trail and you, and you take a look at it, what you're seeing is the visible product. You're seeing only the tip of the iceberg of the whole project. Judy Baca, creator and artistic director of the Great Wall of Los Angeles. One of the things that's really important, I think, about the Great Wall is the interest we have in creating images that are uh, images of truth, that are actually the truth about the history, but also the truth with a special emphasis on people who were really courageous, who managed to overcome the kinds of difficulties that are sort of common, the kind of unsung heroes, I think are real important in terms of providing role models, not only for the kids, but also for us as, as we struggle through a period of time, which is an increasingly difficult time to do this work. And that does it for this week's From the Vault. You've been listening to The Writing on the Wall, The Great Wall, produced by Helene Rosenbluth and Carol Dix in 1984, about the Great Wall mural in Los Angeles. 
narrated by Helene Rosenbluth. This program was preserved and made accessible to the public thanks to a partnership with the California Audiovisual Preservation Project. For a copy of this program or programs in this series, visit us online at pacificaradioarchives.org or call us toll-free in the archives at 1-800-735-0230. From the Vault is produced by Brian DeShazer and Mark Torres with support from the Pacifica Radio Archive staff. From the Vault is presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project, funded in part from Pacifica Station listeners like you. Current preservation projects are funded in part by grants from the Grammy Foundation and the National Historical Publications and Records Commission at the National Archives and Records Administration. For more, please visit us at pacificaradioarchives.org. Thanks for listening and keeping our history alive. FM on your Portland dial, KBOO.FM on your everywhere on earth internet dial. Stay safe, stay sane, stay tuned.